It's going to be one of those kind of sermons. Maybe when you hear the, the topic or the title, you think, I wonder where he's going with this. And it could easily be seen uh, as we go through this series called Joining Jesus on Mission that it's just one more thing, kind of a weight that's on your shoulders. But just a simple illustration of just a simple drop changes things. So I got some food coloring here. Um, Julie didn't have purple, so she gave me green, and I thought, I guess that'll work in Wisconsin. And just a simple drop changes this from clear water to green water. Probably some of you are thinking, now it's going to taste really good, Pastor Kirk. And as we go through this series, and as we go through this message, I just want you to consider a simple, intentional practice of joining Jesus on mission. We've heard such great feedback from this series. Um, people have appreciated the classes. They've appreciated the book. Uh, Greg and Susan uh, Finke were here a couple weeks ago. The J-term classes were packed. Great feedback. And this message is the second part of the message that we had last week, and we'll do a quick review. As Julie and I were, my wife Julie and I were talking about the series, she said, you know, for me, it's been moving from I'm an efficient person. I get a lot of stuff done, and she gets a lot of stuff done. But joining Jesus on mission is really moving from efficiency to enjoyment, to joining what God is doing already. One of the passages of Scripture will use this, this phrase, the good works in advance, in advance that God has prepared you for. And so I just want us to continue a series, or continue this sermon called Simple Practices for Joining Jesus on Mission. And here's what we looked at last week. If you weren't here last week, this is just a really, really quick review. Each of the five practices, we'll look at four and five today, each of the five practices are linked with different senses. The first one is seeking the kingdom. Where do you see God working in your life? And we looked at one of Jesus's, probably his most famous sermon, called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And right in the middle of that is Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, a very familiar verse that many of us have memorized. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus encourages us to seek the kingdom and be aware of the kingdom and the kingdom breakthroughs that he wants to do through us and use us as broken people. Matthew chapter 7 ends that famous sermon, and Jesus talks about building the house either on the rock or the sand, and the wise one builds on the rock. But don't miss the key to that, and that is the word do or obey. God uses even our messy, futile attempts as we obey, as we seek the kingdom. The second one is the ears. The ears on hearing from Jesus. What is God's word speaking to you as you are in God's word? What is he saying? And we looked at a passage of scripture from Matthew 17, this great account of Jesus called the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus appears on this mountain with two Old Testament superheroes, if you will, or Old Testament figures, Elijah and Moses. And God the Father says, listen to him, my son, as you read the law, 
as you read the prophets. Jesus said the same thing. Sunday afternoon after he rose from the dead on the road to Emmaus, he said to the Cleopas and the other disciple, did not the Son of Man have to suffer? And then he opened up the scriptures, the law and the prophets, and said that the Son of Man, the Messiah, had to go through these things. Incredible. As we seek the kingdom, as we hear from Jesus, then we talk with people. Talking with people. And the question is, have you, what kind of conversations have you had with pre-Christians, those outside the fellowship, outside the faith fellowship? What kind of conversations have you had? And we looked at two different passages of Scripture, 1 Kings chapter 17 and then Acts chapter 17. 1 Kings 17 was Elijah and a widow. And I made this comment, Elijah needed a meal. She needed a miracle. And then in Acts chapter 17, when Paul goes to Athens, he actually treats them with respect. I can see that you are religious people, all these idols, and use that as an on-ramp. Respect, a posture of humility. That's where we were. So where are we headed this morning? This is part two, and it will connect again with our senses, and both of them are connected to hands. You'll notice that one of the hands has a nail piercing in it. That's intentional. We're going to talk about doing good. And then the other hands are for ministering in prayer. These are the five mission practices. And so we're going to take a look at those, and then we'll look at two verses for each one. And it seems wise, it would make sense to get our scripture from someone who knows a little bit about missions. So we're going to learn from a Christian leader, a Christian leader by the name of the Apostle Paul, who not only did he write half of the New Testament from Romans to Philippians, 13 books, but he also planted all kinds of churches which were gospel witnesses all around the Mediterranean Sea. He did that. And when he planted those churches, what he did is he wrote formal letters called epistles that would take the teachings of Jesus and explain them, that would take the person of Jesus and the implications of that. And then the call of Jesus and say, how does that apply? Paul would do all those things. So we're going to take a look at his mission letters to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, and Colossians, and it's part two. So because it's part two, I thought it would be wise for us to pray the same prayer that we prayed last week. And I'll say a phrase, and you say a phrase. Very simple. Heavenly Father, will you move in our midst, cause us to see, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, Give us hands and feet to obey you. Amen and amen. All right. Let me just get my tea here so my voice doesn't go. We're going to look at some mission practices, number four and five, just a little drop, just a little drop of intentionality. I want to encourage you to uh, turn to Galatians chapter Five. It's on page 1004 in your Bibles. I'll give you a chance to get there. Galatians chapter 5 as we take a look at the fourth mission practice, which is doing good. And the question is, is what good can we do around here? Galatians chapter 5. Missionary Paul writes this. The book of Galatians is a fascinating book. 
The first couple, three chapters are the doctrine of being set free in Christ. The gospel has come. And what does that mean? It means freedom that we have in Christ. And then we get to Galatians chapter 5. And notice what it says. I'm not sure if it says this, a subheading in your Bible. But it's in this one, it says, freedom in Christ. What does it mean that the gospel has come? There's freedom in Christ. And Paul quickly says in about the middle verses that in this freedom, there is a corrupt nature and a spiritual nature. And notice some of the words that are used in verse 16 and 17. The desires which are contrary to the spirit, contrary to the flesh, and they are in conflict with each other. What does that conflict look like? Well, those are the verses that we're going to take a look at. Did you find it there on page 1004, beginning in verse 19? These are the acts of the flesh. They're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. I'll stop there. We'll continue reading. Why are you reading this list? I'm reading this list because the bottom line is, if we practice these things, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's how serious they are. Okay, let's pick it up. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a big deal. And when you first hear that list, you say, yeah, yeah, preach it, pastor, preach it. And then all of a sudden, the more you read this list, you see yourself in the mirror and go, ooh, ooh that, that describes me a little bit. There's some things in there that I'm embarrassed to say that that would be marked by my week this week. We call these vices. And the corrupt nature and the spiritual nature, the spiritual nature which is good, conflict with each other. That's what Paul said. So he lists what's good fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Repeat, against such things there is no law. There's no limits to that. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, and let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. When we look at that list, we think about Man, I hope I've done good enough. I hope my, my good has outweighed my bad. One is vices and one is virtues. And we have to be remembered that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. The forgiven are often slow and messy and inwardly changed. It's easier to read Galatians chapter 5 and hope they balance or hope that my vices normally are overshadowed by my virtues. But we miss something if we don't understand one other connection. All of these virtues are connected to the vine. Don't read these as vi vices versus virtues. Read these as virtues connected to the vine. Jesus said, 
I am the vine. You are the branches. We're branches. Look what the vine did. He was crushed for us so we might receive the blood of the new covenant. The vine was crucified so that our sins were paid for. The vine died for us so that we might live. The vine descended into hell for us so that we will not be damned and condemned. The vine rose for us so that we will rise with him. And the vine seals us by his Holy Spirit. This is why we do good. Because the Holy Spirit is in us and he fills us and he transforms us and he changes us. That's why we do good in the context of agendaless friendships. I'm connected to the vine. Amen? I saw this doing good in Jesus' name and it had a forever impact in my life in the spring of 2006. I had the opportunity to go with another Lutheran brother and pastor down to see the effects of Hurricane Katrina, that awful hurricane that devastated New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. And we were setting up a trip to bring adults and students together, and we did a pre-trip, and we drove along the highway, and these are some of the pictures that I have. And um, I'll just kind of walk up and down the aisle. You're going to have to follow me with the camera, but this was some of the devastation that was there. And people looked actually like this guy with the cool bandana. And I thought this was interesting. It says, only because Jesus saved me. And then there were stores like Annie, a restaurant that was around since 1928, a family restaurant. And the caption was, it was a family restaurant. And I thought, well, that would be like Randy's being devastated or Altoona family restaurant being devastated. We drove along this highway, and we went by this Methodist church, and it was an A-frame that was destroyed. And as we pulled up to this Methodist church, I saw a Samaritan's Purse U.S. US uh, disaster semi. Never seen it before. And a, a friend with my buddy, I said, hey, let's stop here. And so we walked out, and we pulled up, and this guy comes out, and he was tough-looking. I remember him having a Fu Manchu ripped off shirt and then he had one of those tattoos with the barbed wire around, around his arms. And I remember thinking, do not tick him off. And he said, can I help you guys? And so we explained what we were doing and uh, told him that we were going to bring a team of students and could we come here and do, uh, do, a, do a quiet quiet retreat for just half a day. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So we had a wonderful visit with him. And then I remembered asking him this very specific question. He said, um, he said, there's, I, I looked at him and I said, there's no cameras. There's no TVs. There's no press. Everybody's gone. It's been nine months after Katrina. Everybody's gone. You're not going to get any credit for the work that you are doing here. What does your president, Franklin Graham, think about that? And this tough-looking guy got a smile on his face, and he said, Franklin loves it because now we get to do good and fly under the radar, and we get to serve people with no credit to our name. And I remember leaving that conversation thinking and having this imprinted in my heart, compassion through good deeds, in Jesus' name, 
has an undeniable witness for the king. Compassion, done in Jesus' name. If you want to say anointed by the Holy Spirit, fine. But when they're done in Jesus' name, they have an undeniable witness for the king. Good deeds matter. And God has set you up for those. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, another of Paul's mission letters. Ephesians chapter 2 on page 1007. It's oftentimes one of the first verses that a new Christian or a growing Christian will memorize. They'll just tuck it in their hearts. It's like world famous. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. Some of you are smiling back at me and going, oh yeah, this is a great one. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. No boasting. It's all gift. It's totally been given to you. You never earned it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do more good than bad. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. But don't stop there. Okay, my notes just dropped. This will be a really short sermon. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Look what the next verse says. It says, we're God's handiwork. Other translations use masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance. The idea of in advance is the context of God's sovereign choice, standing ready to meet the challenge, being ready for what lies ahead, necessary preparations. When Julie knows that we have guests coming, she will often set the table before anybody comes. It's that I'm ready stage. The same phrase in advanced is used one other time by missionary Paul. Just one other time. Romans chapter 9, verse 23. If you want to flip over, and there is a reference that you go, Paul, that's crazy. Why would you ever use that reference? Romans 9, 23. Listen to what missionary Paul writes. What if God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Prepared in advance. Even us, whom he also called, not only from Jews, but Gentiles. And he says in Hosea, <gasps> that's a crazy book. Hosea the prophet was asked to marry a prostitute and be faithful to her and pursue her, even if she was unfaithful again and again and again. And that's who Paul quotes. He goes on to say, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Let me say this really clear. You, through your good works, might be the prayer request of a grandma from another state praying for a granddaughter by the name of Amy. You might be a prayer request answer to a father's son named Trevor who is not walking with Christ right now by your good deeds, prepared in advance. Wow. Joining Jesus on mission, here's a phrase. Write this down. Let's be first responders of kindness, goodness, and hope. Let us be first responders of kindness, goodness, and hope. 
whether that's shoveling the driveway or waving or checking in on someone or just ringing the doorbell and saying, how are you doing? Small. You see, that symbol there was intentional with a hole in the hand. That was intentional because we do this in Jesus' name. And the next hands are similar. They're in prayer. And so a transition between the two, I thought a story from our friend Greg Finke would be perfect. I love this story. If you have the book, it's on page 128. Maybe you read it before. And Greg tells the story of a fellow by the name of Wade from South Dakota. He writes this. On one occasion, Wade is talking. A man I was getting to know deployed, developed a tumor in his neck and was going on in for surgery. I had been calling him and praying for him during the biopsy and diagnosis of cancer, and he was a little shook about the upcoming surgery. I offered to meet him in the hospital in the morning of his surgery to pray with him, and he was thankful I was willing to do that. The day before his surgery, however, I received a call from my sister in Omaha telling me my niece was hospitalized and not doing well, and I felt I needed to go to be with her. Knowing my friend's surgery was the next morning, I had promised to be there for him. I decided to walk down the street to his house and tell him what was going on with my niece. And when I got to his house, a group of four or five guys were sitting in the driveway having a beer. They offered me one, and I sat down and visited a little before I told them what was going on. They were very understanding. And I apologized to the one having surgery that I couldn't be there the next morning. He was very gracious and said it was fine. And then I realized the opportunity that God seemed to be presenting, and I suggested we pray for our friend right there in the driveway. Needless to say, I had several sets of blinking eyes looking at me, including the man I wanted to pray for. He was beginning to say yes, but was still looking around at the other guys to see what they would think of it. At that moment, the Spirit moved me to jump into action. I told the others to put their beers down and gather around our friend. I told them to put their hands on our friend, and I began to pray. I was able to pray the love, care, and healing power of Jesus into all of their lives, and I gave thanks for the assurance that there isn't anywhere we can go, that the risen Jesus isn't already with us. It was a simple, short prayer. But when I finished, I looked up, and some of the guys had tears in their eyes and said, wow, we've done a lot of stupid stuff on this street, but we never prayed for each other. Wow. Does it work like that in real life? It sure does. You see, when you build trust, people begin to share. And so our fifth mission practice is ministering in prayer. The late Dr. Howard Hendricks, who was a prophet at the great seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, would often talk like this. He would say, if you want to make people feel guilty, just ask them this question. Brother Tom, how's your prayer life? People will look down and go, don't ask me again. I was a Lutheran seminary student, and I quickly heard a great quote from Luther that thought, I'm toast. And his quote was this, I have so much to do that I spend the first three hours of the day in prayer. Oh, man. How do you compete with that? 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says this, pray without ceasing. So how do you get any work done? Ephesians chapter 6 is our next passage of Scripture. I want you to flip over so you'll just go to the right. Ephesians chapter 6 gives us this idea of prayer 
and the context is spiritual warfare, finally put on the armor of God. And notice what the Apostle Paul says. It's on page 1009. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And in one of my Bibles, I have this. People are not the problem. The evil one is. Why do you say that? Because in the next verse, in verse 12, and this could be a whole sermon, look at the levels that we stand against. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against, here's level one, the rulers. Level two, against the authorities. Level three, against the powers of this dark world. And level four, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul shifts from the horizontal to the vertical. And in each dark level, the light of Christ has overcome. Maybe this series will restart or re-jump your prayer life with habits and rhythms and patterns as you go to school. Most of us take the same route on the way to work or to school. What would happen if that same route became a time where you started to pray for those people or pray for the people that you work with or the people on that block? We've given you and made available, and it's at the Welcome Center, this wonderful guide that's from the Navigators, how to do a prayer walk in your neighborhood. How do I do that? Pick one of those up. When trust is built, people start sharing. I shared last spring on my birthday, a good friend took me out for my birthday meal. We had a meal at, in Woodbury, a suburb of St. Paul. And my friend very naturally said to Demi, our waiter, this is my good friend Kirk. We've been friends for a long time, and it's his birthday. I'm going to say a little prayer for him. Is there anything I can pray for you for? Demi was a little shocked. She said, well, actually, you can. And my friend Mark, here at church, he heard that, and he's told me later, he said, Kirk, I'm, 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 trying, to, I'm trying to do that now when I go out to eat, when it seems very natural. Is there anything I can pray for you for? So let me encourage you to, how do you pray for other people in the midst of a really full life? Well, how about dedicating each day to praying for something? for someone or for a group of people. Maybe you can pray for leaders on Monday in your church on Tuesday and those that are on your heart on Wednesday and your spouse or significant people in your life on Thursday, your kids or your grandkids on Friday and pray for yourself on Saturday. Just some regular habits that are a part of this. I was reading a... Uh, a Bible study years ago by Beth Moore. And she made the fact, she made this claim and she said, when Henrietta Mears, a great Bible teacher, passed away, I realized, I realized that other people will need to stand in the gap now. That hit me. It hit me and thought, God, are you calling us to stand in the gap and pray? You bet. It's our season. The Apostle Paul also helps us in a mission letter in Colossians chapter 4, our last passage of scripture that we'll take a look at, page 1017. Colossians is one of my favorite books. It contains my first life verse, Colossians 3, 17 and 23. And in the book of Colossians chapter 4, you'll notice what Paul says, further instructions. He writes 
in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, he says, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us that God may open a door for our message that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ, which I am in chains. And then he writes this in verse 5. Will you read this verse out loud with me on your market set? Read, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer anyone. You see, when hope, when trust is built, people start sharing. When trust is built, people start sharing. And when we do the hard work of prayer before, God will naturally open those doors. And not all the time do those doors are pleasant. So let me tell you the story of a man whose life is worth observing. I want you to meet a man by the name of Graham Staines, who was an Australian missionary, and along with his two boys were murdered in, on January 23, 1999. His, son, his little guy there on the left-hand side is Philip, age 10, and Timothy, age 6. They were killed when 50, a mob of 50 people with axes att attacked them when they were sleeping in their station wagon. Now, a little background story on why they did that. Graham Staines had been working in Odisha, India, since 1965 in an evangelical missionary organization called Mayur Bahani Leprosy Home. It cared for people who had leprosy, and it gave them the job for tribal people in abject poverty. However, in that country, some Hindu groups alleged that during this time, Graham had lured or forcibly coerced many Hindus into believing in the Christian faith. And that was illegal. You couldn't do that. But following the murder, a commission found that some of the tribes, that although some of the tribes had been baptized at camps, there was no evidence of forced conversions. For five years, his widow stayed at that leprosy colony for five years following his murder. In 2019, there was a film that was made called The Least of These. You can rent it on Amazon Prime or maybe another streaming service. And it told the story. And one of the facts that brought up was that there, were reporter, there was a reporter that was tasked to find out if indeed they had forced conversions because that was illegal. And he watched Graham Staines, interviewed him, watched his ministry, was there on the colony campus of that home observing and the scene that you're going to see is after the murder you're going to see a scene that's at the colony leprosy home the reporter is going through files looking for evidence of the good deeds that forced people to convert and the reporter meets a leper and don't miss what the leper said he was the first person who touched me. He was the first person who touched me. And his answer doesn't wrap up the bow real nice, but it leaves in this mystery of God, what are you up to? Here's this clip from the least of these. It's just about two minutes. Looking for something?
the account ledgers over there. What did he give you to convert? He's just been killed. So you can tell me now? Doesn't matter anymore. Why did you convert? You want the truth? <laughs> truth always seems to cost something. You know, from when I got leprosy to when Dada found me in all those years, he was the only person who touched me. Is touching lepers an inducement? You must be desperate to be touching me. Just tell me the truth about his conversions. Truth? Tell me! Graham showed me God's love. Why wouldn't I convert? So that you could say I saw God's love in Graham. And you know you could say only if you converted. I never converted. The truth. I am not a Christian. He never converted, but he said this, I was touched by the man of God who ministered to me. Only heaven knows the impact on that man. We're free to reject the things that are offered to us, but that touch, good works touch, it changes people. So here's the application. You ready to get started? You ready to say, Jesus, I want to join you? Next week, we'll talk about his plan, that of throwing a party. Number two, I want to encourage you to consider taking 10 minutes to ask the five questions in your life group, in your Bible study, or your gathering of other believers. Uh, when Greg and Susan were here, they handed out these coasters. And if you didn't get a chance, these are the five questions. These are at the Welcome Center. Pick one up and just take 10 minutes when you gather as a life group, as a Bible study, to ask those. And then remember this. You are the light of the world. Those are Jesus' words. This was the picture that Greg showed us. Pretend this is Chippewa and that cross is Bethesda, right on the corner of State and Hamilton. And as we leave here, as we exit the building and as we go back to our homes, this is where we, you and I are at. All those little lights, that's you and I. But think about what happens when these mission conversations happen. It spreads. That's what God can do. Will you join him? Amen.